red, chitlins, and collard greens. to survive a zombie apocalypse? This is Remy Hendrick from the Urban Ninja Project, and you're listening to WLXL LPFM Lexington Community Radio.
afternoon. It's 2 o'clock on Tuesday. You're on WLXL LPFM and you're listening to Hot Water Cornbread Kentucky Food Radio. We're here with your hosts, Wida Michael and Rona Roberts. And I'm Chris Michael and we're here in the studio. Here's Rona. We have a special person and he gets to speak in a minute, but he gets really introduced a little bit later. We love having guests. We love having really interesting and good guests like we have today. Um, So we like to start with um, asking what was the best bite or sip that people had this week. And I have to say, we've let this, this... this idea expands so that sometimes we have two or three each. Last week, Chris owes us one because last week he had nothing. <laughs> he had, not he had, I'm going to not make him go first so he has time to well, think. Oh, I know. I've got something. Oh, oh go Ooh. first then, please. Please go, Chris. We went to a little restaurant up in Cincinnati and we had some awesome ramen. Awesome ramen. Awesome ramen. Mm. It was what called, was in it? It's called Quan the restaurant. It's up there and over the Rhine. Um, Let's see, I had a ramen. I had a dry ramen with just a little bit of broth in it. It had a miso um, miso cooked pork and uh, poached egg, and that was really good. And then our daughter Willa had uh, ramen with beef and just a pretty traditional miso. ramen, beef and miso mm-hmm. and egg. They do a nice job. And they have all kinds of – and they, they have something on the menu which I haven't seen very often. They have a Filipino dish called bulut. Which, oh, I love balut. We didn't get. You didn't have. I do love balut. And my Filipino friend texted me and said, "You should have gotten a balut." It tastes like chicken soup in, with a, with a little duck. Tell anybody what it is, and if they go to the Facebook page and put on there what balut is, all right, get, everyone can guess. Okay, so you get a T-shirt if you go, don't, but don't look it up, people. Oh, they're no, they're no. out there. Oh, they're out there <laughs> looking it up. Darn it! <laughs> Shoot. Uh, let's see. Okay, anything else from the ramen place? Uh, uh, tell us the name of the know. restaurant again. Tell them, tell them. I had okonomiyaki. Okonomiyaki. Okonomiyaki, which is the Japanese egg pancake. It was, um, good. Pancake. It was, oh, it was yeah. quite good. Have, it's a little bit sweet. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they have really several good. different flavors of that. They have roll your own spring rolls. and Which we did. Good. That was fun. <laughs> it's it's fun an anime, fun. you know, anime, Japanese. It yeah, felt like anime, you were in Tokyo a little bit. anime playing on the TV. Yeah. Lots of sake and... And so someone will post the name of this wonderful it's restaurant. It's called Quan Hapa. Quan Hapa. I wouldn't want to begin to guess Quan how Hapa. to spell it, but we'll post that on the Facebook That's page. Good. It's been there for a few years, though. It was one of the first places up there when they started to redo that area. Good. But uh, so I'm done. That's okay. it. Okay, uh, Unless yours, yours wasn't Okana. Okano Mayaki. No, it was something else. You, no, mine was our present from my Tran last oh. week because we didn't talk about it on air. Um, for those of you who missed last week, we did have a wonderful guest, Mai Tran, who's uh, um, escaped Saigon in 1975, and she brought Rona and I these little um, containers of candied hibiscus flowers. It's one of the most incredible things I've ever eaten. It was so delicious. And then she came to dinner um, on Friday with Bridget. And her husband, Michael, and brought me all the syrup. Oh, <laughs> sorry, Rona. I got a little jar, too. I got a little jar. Did you get syrup. a little jar yes, of syrup? Did. Oh, that's right. You got, she had I yours. Did, yes. Yeah. I had syrup and you didn't. So w- when Wita says came to dinner, she means at Holly Hill Inn where there was Vietnamese Vietnamese food menu. all weekend. That's and right. And someone posted on Facebook that it was one of the best meals of her life. Oh, good. Jen- Jenny Williams, a friend and a person who knows a lot about food and eats in a lot of places, oh. said she had just finished one of the best meals of her life. Oh, great. Yeah. I thought the flavors were great. And um, my also made me, because I have had a cold and you can kind of hear it in my voice, a lemon infused honey. Mm. 
And she took a jar of honey and she put lemon zest in it mm-hmm. and sliced lemons and mm-hmm. no bourbon. No bourbon. <laughs> you I've given up some. alcohol for Lent. <laughs> so far, I'm doing okay. Um, even medicinal alcohol. That's impressive. Mm, <laughs> you've just given me a new excuse. <laughs> that's how. That's how. <laughs> apparently, that's how Brown Foreman, <coughs> through old Forrester, survived yeah. 14 years of prohibition. That's exactly right. That's how they survived. I forget that. 13 so that or was me. Years. Okay. Well, um, I'm going to ask John Granville to go next, and I'm not even going to tell you anything about him, except that I've had a little bit of stuff that he's cooked, and it's fantastic. But, John, did you have a great bite or sip this week? Yes. uh, Coming home from a great day of work, it's good to have a wife that can cook. (laughs) So it's good to come home to a, since I'm trying to eat healthy, Uh she bakes some chicken. Uh With the lemon pepper sauce. Mm. What kind of sauce was it? Lemon pepper. Mm. I'd like to have a wife who made me dinner (laughs) (laughs) after a long day's work. John. (laughs) I'm kidding. It's good to have a, for the coffee drinkers, Mm. it's good to have one that drinks with you too. Yeah. You got to say, can you drink, can you fix some coffee? It's already there. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. That is nice. Lemon chick roast lemon chicken. That is good. Actually that's perfect after a long I, I day. I do make cook. coffee sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> We're only nine minutes into the show and I think that our, our guest who will be introduced in more detail has already uh, introduced us to some of the secrets of life. So yeah, yeah. Great. so we're good having a we're having a good show chicken. already. Yeah. Um my best bite or sip was um it was a sauce for a dish that I made for the Dan Wu chef potluck. They, they, I'm not a chef, but they let me. They look the other way and let me come. <laughs> and on Sunday, Sam Sifton posted a, or posted. There was a recipe in the New York Times Magazine from a restaurant in Venice, California, called. I looked up how to pronounce it. Jalinas, um, and the recipe, which is, it's a apparently a really wild place on the beach there that's been there forever. Mm. They have a new cookbook. So he's been cooking from it. Sam Sifton has, and he posted a recipe called um, Jelena's roasted yams and the yams. He had them roasted in honey and some spice, some, some tangy stuff. I used sorghum, but the sauce was so good that I ended up standing over the sink and just sort of eating it with a spoon. And it was nothing but Greek yogurt and a lot of lime juice and Ooh. a little bit of olive oil. And, yeah. Oh, and added to the top of these roast sweet potatoes, which are roasted with their skins on until they're very dark. Mm. And I used little tiny fingerling ones I hadn't known how to use that had come in my CSA basket from mm. Elmwood. So that was Elmwood. my best bite. Really good? Mm. Yes. And I've already, I think I've already posted that. Fingerling roast sweet potatoes with sorghum and lime Greek yogurt. That sounds damn good. It's so good. Darn good. (laughs) Yum, yum, yum. Yum, yum. Um, All right. So let's identify ourselves and who we are. You want to do that, Chris? Play a little song, Chris, and give us a a station break and do a station ID for us. WLXL LPFM, Lexington. Uh, We'll be right back after this. Ooh, Melba, here come the coal man, and you know he keeps some good vegetables. Mm, ooh, let me call him. The Raider! Hey, girl. Ooh, Catrice, come on. Here yeah, come. girl, I gotta get some okra tonight. Oh, yeah, some yeah, corn yeah, yeah. and some yeah, snippings. Y'all got some collard greens, you know? Blueberries. Yeah. Blueberry. I'm gonna get some blueberries. I don't know about that. I'm gonna make some pies, too. Make sure you put 
Saltwater Cornbread. I'm Weeda Michael, and you're listening to WLXL 95.7 in Lexington, Kentucky. I'm here with uh, Rona Roberts, my co-host, and Chris Michael, our master of ceremonies. And today we have a really special guest, um, young chef whose name is John Granville. Um, chef Granville's from Lexington, and he's been cooking professionally for 15 years. And he's, I'm, I'm really proud to say he's been on my staff at Smithtown Seafood from day one. He opened the restaurant with us. He just got a promotion. Um, yay. yay. And, uh, you know, he's, he's an exemplary chef. And um, so we're really, you know, I'm really happy to have him on here. Thank you. Yeah. Say something, John. Say a big hello to everybody. How is everybody today? <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that we were talking about on the way over here was what caused you to to think about cooking what caused you what's caused you to walk in the front door of smithtown i mean you had a job at the time that you kind of liked and um but you from day one you wanted to know more about cooking and go into it what was why i'm (coughs) i like to expand my horizons and the job I was at prior to Smithtown, it was simple, something I could you could teach anybody. Uh-huh. And I like to expand the horizon, set a bar that most people look at and say no. Yeah. I'm a I think that's very true about you actually. I like to go outside the box. You do like to go outside <laughs> the box. I love that about you. So tell me like who in your life well, what inspired you to like to cook? Well, my grandmother, my and mother. We like grandmothers and mothers. Let's start with your grandmother. What was her name? Lula Mae Hayden. Lula Mae Hayden. Yes, ma'am. She was from Bracktown, Kentucky. Uh-huh. Lived uh, on Ch- Charles Avenue. She ran a nursing home, had s- little several pri- private properties that she owned. But the main thing that I loved about her that I didn't know until after her passing uh-huh. was the club that she had. <laughs> what was the name oh, of this club? I see. I never found out the name. That's one thing my mother and everybody kept. They didn't from. want. They did not want you to know. <laughs> no, because every time you go into the back of her house, you always see the bar table, the old uh, DJ music box. Oh, seriously. The pool tables, even some of the old style liquor bottles. Oh, that is so cool. So as a little kid, you'd go back in there and the stuff would be back there. Yes, ma'am. And I just, like, she always said, get away from back air. <laughs> she didn't want you to, she didn't want you to know anything about her past. Um, she also, after, after the club and she had children, she turned it into a boarding home. Uh-huh. So people who was ill-fortunate couldn't really afford the apartments or houses. Right. She rented out rooms that she had. To them. And also at the nursing home, too, right? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. We discovered that I'd gone to that nursing home a couple of times. Well, so so and the, so, your, so your grandmother's name is Lula Mae Hayden. Yes, ma'am. And what's your mom's name? Tony Yvonne. Well, now it's Green. Tony Yvonne Green. And what about your mom's cooking? I mean, well, what about Lula Mae? I mean, did they both like cooking or... Yes, uh, my mother, she was a workaholic. She worked for the city, so... So she she, didn't do a lot of cooking. She did and didn't. When she did... It was all out. It was quick. (laughs) On the weekends, that's when she went all out crazy, wanted to make the meatloaf that everybody loved. Uh Get up, make breakfast. 
I remember the sausage ball my mama used to make. The what? Sausage balls. Sausage balls. Now this is, let's talk about the sausage balls for a minute. Because you wanted to make those sausage balls for that one breakfast that we did, I think. You had them on your first menu. <laughs> talk to me about what those sausage balls are. Uh, well, you can find it now in the Bisquick cookbook. But uh -huh. it's a little Bisquick sausage with the cheese. Crumble it up, uh, ball it together, put uh -huh. it in the oven. Mm. Let it all cook together. Mm. Oh man, that's you not just, right. You just sit there with the tray. <laughs> <laughs> I remember her chasing me out of the kitchen a few times off that. Oh really? <laughs> Get out of my kitchen. <clears throat> I'm, okay. I'm and trying. so that was what? Now your mom worked for the city, and that was so when she was cooking during the week, she was a working mom. Trying to make dinner for all our kids. How many brothers and sisters do you have? Well, it was just me and my brother. So just the two of you. But of course, you're big. You're a big guy. <laughs> you're tall. Yeah. <coughs> so I'm sure you guys ate like a ton of, you're probably big eaters. Oh, yeah. There was many a times that we've eaten the refrigerator bear and had a, be like, baby, you got to wait a couple days. <laughs> uh, you kind of ate out of everything. So That's when you got creative thinking between me and my brother on trying to think of meals. And then what, did, what would you come up with? Well, one crazy one, I made a mayo barbecue sandwich just to try it out. Oh, cool. And? and it, was a, it was a acquired taste. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, when, I always knew when, my, when I was growing up that... Um, we were at the end of the month because, you know, my dad got paid once a month and we were at the end of the month. My mom would buy powdered milk and like that would make its way out of the of the cupboard at the end of the month. You know, that was like the worst. I hate to this day. I hate the smell of that powdered milk. You are not alone. <laughs> I would rather do cereal and water. Yeah, I would too. <laughs> I really would too. Well, so there was another story that you were sharing with us. So we were talking earlier about like great inspirations that make you want to cook, like all those big meatloaf dinners that your mom made and the big breakfasts and all that stuff. It makes you feel so good when you're, especially when you're a kid to have your mom or your grandmother or somebody cooking for you. But you had another person in your life who used to um, make a dish you called SOS. Yeah, it was I think my it was... mother's husband. Uh, his, his name was Charlie. Let's say he, I don't believe he was military, but he was raised up military-like. Uh huh. He he worked his, as you want to call it, butt off. He worked yeah. for the Red Mount Racing. Oh really? So, Interesting. Did he work on the track or? No, he worked with the horses. Actually, he was part like a horse trainer, trainer, and he raced some of them. Oh wow! So he was a jockey too. Yes, he was. Or a trotter, he would probably ride if, no, if he it's a, did little races because it was a wow. harness race because yeah. you ain't sitting on them. So, yeah, he uh, I remember seeing pictures with him. He had my little brother, really, I wasn't a horse person, so they kind of freaked you out a little. No, the smell, <laughs> <laughs> you have a sense, <coughs> yeah, I get that. So, anyway, so Charlie did some of the cooking at home, yes, ma'am. But you did you get along pretty good with Charlie? Depends. It was It was hard because he was like your stepdad, right? Yes, ma'am. I mean, I give him credit for taking the step that most men wouldn't. Right. Absolutely. But we've had our fallen outs and everything, but I love him because he took care of my mother. Yeah. 
So And he tried to take care of you guys probably. Now yeah. that you're an adult you can see Yeah, I've seen all the The ups stuff. and downs and how hard it is, right? Oh yes. But he would well, tell me about Charlie's like signature dish there. Well, before we before mama cooks, he'll be, make a pot at the end of the week, whatever, meat, mm -hmm. get some noodles together, just throw it all in the pot, say here's dinner. Yeah. What is that? I just call it goulash. <laughs> Well, I have to laugh. I'm laughing because I make a um, dish called gamish. I mean, it's famous. Chris will t attest to the fact that my gamish is famous. I do the same thing at the end of the week. I'm very sad to confess. But uh, anyway, this lovely goulash, a.k.a. SOS, <laughs> Charlie's SOS plate, it, it inspired you to... It, ins it inspired you to... Um, to begin to cook, right? Because you didn't want to eat too much more of it. No. I, <laughs> I asked, when I got of age, I asked my mama, is it okay if I start cooking? All right. She let me cook. Now, I had my one grease fire ever in life. Mm. I put it out. She, I told her about it. She said, okay, at least you cleaned up your mess. Now you learned your lesson. Yeah. I said, oh, yes. No hollering. Don't say. That's good. And after that, I just been more cautious of what's around me, yeah. And be careful of my grease levels back then. Yeah. But what caught fire? Uh, I was cooking bacon in a smaller skillet, something too small for the bacon to reach over. Mm. Trying to be quick. Uh -huh. when Mama got home. She said, "Leave my kitchen alone." So I just tried to cook something real quick. Uh -huh. Didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it worked too well. <laughs> yeah, I ate it, but ate the mess no. was more extensive than the meal itself. <laughs> well, we're talking to John Granville. He's a chef at uh, sous chef at uh, Smithtown Seafood. He's been a professional chef in Lexington for 15 years, and we're lis listening to a little bit of his personal um, culinary story. But um, Rona has. Um, is going to jump in now, and I'm going to share my mic with you, John, because Rona has some different. Well, she, he, I'm, I'm, you're good. I'm, you're still, I'm good? still going to be talking less okay. yet, and we're going to let you. You can keep your germs over there. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll keep my. Yeah, that's actually a good point. <laughs> um, so, this in February, which is Black History Month, we have uh, asked of ourselves that we learn more about the impact of Black people on our cooking, but especially of Africa and. Um, African foods and how they've made their way into North American cuisine across a few hundred years. So we have um, we've talked about some of the famous um, local cooks in Kentucky. We've talked about some of the black chefs in in the White House. We we may get to a little bit more of that today. But one of the um, one of the things that caught my attention this week is a book by Jessica Harris. She's a an African-American historian of African-American food. And she has written several books. The one that I read this week was called The Comfort Table. And the Welcome Table. I'm sorry, The Welcome Table. You're right, The Welcome Table. Um, and she, in there, does many things. But one of the things she does is she identifies um, seven, I think she calls them, Influence, no, tendencies, seven culinary tendencies that traveled from Africa to America and are emblematic of African-inspired cooking in the United States. So I wanted to run these by the three people in here who cook and deal with food for a living and see if they ring true and see if they bring to mind any 
present day examples from your menus or your home cooking. And the first, uh, which I think is one of the hardest ones, she starts with the preparation of composed rice dishes. I did not know what a composed rice dish was Hmm. until later she says, oh, like Hop and John. Um, So that's the first thing she says is a tendency of African inspired cooking that we have now in the United States and did not have, would not have other than for Africa. So does that ring any bells? It does for me. John, does it for you? I'll talk about a dish that I make a lot called Country Captain, which is sort of a chicken curry and it has bacon in it. And then sometimes they might put pineapple on the top or green onions or toasted almonds. Um, but there's another really famous example that I grew up eating with my mom. But my mom's from was from Wyoming. My parents moved to Kentucky from a little town in Wyoming. But this dish was something that was very prevalent in the 1950s across the Midwest. So it's like a midwife, a mid a Midwestern housewife dish called in 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 Wyoming it was called Pike's Peak because Pike's Peak is this famous, you know, mountaintop. Here it might be called something different. We might call it chicken fricassee or but you take a bed of rice and put cream chicken on top. And then you put a whole bunch of different toppings on that. And that was one of her signature dishes <clears throat> that we ate my entire childhood. Um, so anytime that you have, like, you might think of another famous one from New Orleans, red beans and rice. Yeah. On Fat Tuesday, the dish that we made that was rice-based. Uh, the jambalaya. Jambalaya is another <laughs> classic one from the Deep South. Jambalaya's what she's talking about when she's talking about mm-hmm. composed rice dishes coming over. Chris, you got any in well, your... Well, now being a uh, northern <laughs> we uh, Germanic um, heritage, we didn't really do rice very much when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, noodles. We did a lot of noodles. Mm-hmm. My grandmother made spetzel. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, you know, bring back a goulash. We did goulash, which, you know, like a beef stew with noodles. Uh-huh. But uh, rice never... Very occasionally we had rice as a side dish, but it's funny, we didn't really do rice. I think one um, of the interesting ways you can see it coming into the modern culture, and I don't know if you had this, but, well, I'm older than you, okay? I'm way older than John by, like, 20 years, okay? But, I wouldn't say that, but... Well, I'm, I have, I'm, I, it's unfortunate, but that's just the way, that's how old I am. I'm going to have to live with it. But when I was a kid, electric skillets were just coming on the market, and it was a big deal to have, and my mom did tons of cooking in her electric skillet, one of which was called Spanish rice. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this, Rona? Oh, yeah, we, you would, we would have minute pork chops, the little tiny ones, and she'd fry them, and then she'd... It was like tomatoes and a slice of green pepper and a slice of onion and cheese and over rice. And did you ever hear of rice aroni? You know the San yes, Francisco ma'am. treat. That's sort of an example of how all of this begins to come together. It's interesting. Now we had rice aroni. Uh-huh. Of course you did, because your mother loved convenience foods. <laughs> we had lots of boxes of things. Yeah. Well, you can- you can thank Africa for that. Okay, great. <laughs> let's let's try another one. I'm afraid this is a pure gimme. The creation of various types of fritters. What on earth could we say that we eat that might be <laughs> fritter-like? I would start my 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 offering would be hush puppies. Mm-hmm. Start there. Yeah. What do you think, uh, John? Well, I started eating this more at work when we used to have them as the cod fritters. Oh yeah. Fritters. Oh yes. And that actually probably is very African because it was a ground fish. You know, we were making, um, and that's a takeoff of like a salted cod, but we were using fresh cod, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, the cod fritters. And um, we do um, an okra fritter. I mean, I don't know. I've I've made 
We have another one that we do, artichoke fritters. That's mm-hmm. a very classic one. Um, I think I've probably made every fritter known to mankind. I'm trying to Fre- not go too wild because fresh I, corn fritters is something that yes. that you we start, you grew up with a creamed corn fritter. Fresh corn fritters, they were more like a pancake mm-hmm. than a mm-hmm. nugget. But mm-hmm. yeah. I remember growing up with them too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. And like chicken croquettes kind of would be maybe follow uh, along those lines. Do I, you got to speak into the mic. I'm sorry, salmon croquettes? Yeah, have you, do you make salmon croquettes? I don't, but my wife does. She won't let Mm. me learn that. (laughs) I love salmon croquettes. I'm like a salmon croquette freak. Oh, I am too. Are you really? Oh, yes, ma'am. Get that uh, recipe. We need to put that on the menu. I'm I'm trying. She she literally fights me to get me out of the kitchen. What's Why? Her, what's her first name? Can we know her first name? Vanessa. Go, so was she like she doesn't want to be, become famous for Vanessa's salmon croquettes? The next time I see <laughs> Vanessa, I'm going to be like, oh hey Vanessa, how about those salmon croquettes? How are how what do you do to those? I'll just engage her in a little casual conversation. Then we'll start working the we'll start working the recipe up. Yeah, I'm trying, because if she cooks, she makes sure I'm busy. Mm-hmm. She'll say, John, can you do this? Can you do this? And I'll say, I'm done, but I'm finally wind up in the kitchen. Here go a croquette missing. Uh-huh. <laughs> got a little grease spot right there. <laughs> Here, uh-huh. taste, taste this. I already did. It's good. I think, I, think, um, I think we see the issue right now for Vanessa. <laughs> She's trying to get the food to the table. <laughs> and and not have it all eaten on the way. Yeah, yeah. There's um, just one other fritter I would mention that I have always been interested in but have never tried, and that's the rice fritters. Calais, I think they're called, or Calais, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but they're apparently kind of, they have been fading away in New Orleans as a, as a street food tradition. Mm-hmm. My suspicion is that like many other foods of that sort, they'll be making their way back. Because we have a recipe that uses the rice in an okra fritter that's fantastic. Mm. You know, I love that. Mm. And an example of how rice is such a deep, I mean, when we're talking about African influences on food, you know, it goes back 20,000 years, right? First cultivated food ever. It's the Africa, Northern Africa is the beginning of cooking, the beginning of... It's the beginning of people. The beginning of human... We, we, culti- we all come Cultivated from crops, it, it, right, yeah. yeah. And so you can see it in Arancini and the way that the Italians make mm. their arborio rice mm. and they make their rice balls and, mm. you know, stuff them or bind them with cheese and deep fry them. But <clears throat> those rice fritters, I'm going to have to bring you that recipe, Rona. I promise you I won't forget. With the rice and the okra are mm-hmm. really, really good. I think I don't want to do all seven of these. I'm going to tell you what the what three more are, and then just concentrate on one more for for stories. Okay. Um, three more that Jessica Harris. Th- these are are uh, culinary tendencies that traveled from Africa to America. Um, the use of okra as a thickener, mm. the use of leafy green vegetables, mm. the abundant use of peppery and spicy hot sauces. And the use of nuts and seeds as thickeners. So I think that would be like ground nuts, stew, peanut, peanut mm-hmm. um, butter, we would say, thickening stews. But the one I think may, uh, we all, we, we can recognize easily uh, is her third, which is the use of smoked ingredients for flavoring. Mm. So anybody ever heard of that? Oh, come on. <laughs> well, what we're talking about there is like... <clears throat> 
slow cooked green beans and greens with bacon or country ham. I mean, that's the classic, right? Tell me your grandmother did not make that. She did. Oh, yes. yes, she did. How'd she, she do it? Well, she liked to pick. She she wanted to always get fresh picked green beans. Mm-hmm. Make you pick them herself. Yeah. She's like, here's always sit down, baby. Just get the green beans in the water. She'll make sure she gets... She didn't do the bacon too much. She get the ham hock. Oh, well, yeah, that's classic. So yeah. she put the ham hock in. First. Just let it slow cook, lit it. By 20 minutes later, you can start smelling, smelling the whole house. Then you start seeing a family hoard closer to the kitchen. Uh-huh. Then that's, you know, when that's dinner time. When she did her green beans, John, did she do cornbread or new potato? I mean, did what, did what was part of that meal where she would do slow-cooked green beans with ham hocks? Uh, she would do cornbread, but she liked the hot water cornbread a little uh, bit better. Of course. <laughs> Everybody she, likes hot water cornbread better. <laughs> but that was mainly when she done her green beans, she'd get the cast iron skillet out, make sure she got it all greased and ready. Yeah. Throw it. If she wants to make sure that she got enough for everybody ain't got to stand in the kitchen, she'll just do the cast iron cornbread. Mm-hmm. But... If it's just me and a couple other people, she that's when she'll... Fry it to order. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. There is nothing better. Now, did she do greens the same way she did green beans? Did she cook greens that way, like collard greens or kale or anything like that with the ham hock? Yes, yes, ma'am. Yeah. My granny believed in bacon. She (laughs) believed in pork items. And pork items, yes. When it came to cooking... I like that Lula May. I agree with her. When it came to cooking, she liked her pork. Yes, ma'am. You all the, owe all that to Africa. Isn't that interesting? Yes. That 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 those greens cooked with that ham hock and all that came directly as an influence from what about Africa. The, uh, like up north, we had the green split pea with ham. Do you think that owes a, mm-hmm. does that owe a mm-hmm. nod to Africa? I think? would think so, yeah. I mean, northerners like to think they're not influenced by African cooking, but I'm sorry well, we no, started. I know. It, it, yeah, yeah, it influences the wide. whole country. The whole country, yeah. Yeah. And one of the ways that it does that I had not really realized, according to, to Jessica Harris, is that the the when the railroads came on, I knew about the Pullman, the porters having like the the best jobs that African Americans could get for a while were porters mm-hmm. on railroads, and there there were those people were able to um, make enough money to support families well and so forth. But I did not know about cooking. On these trains, we're and fabulous. 52 of the 61 railroads operating in 1919 were the, <laughs> the kitchens were run by African American people, mm-hmm. and um, the, all the food was cooked, invented, cooked, prepared. And so, what happened was that food traveled out yeah. around the country. Those railroads were bringing food all over the place, and she says. And similarly, whatever food people would encounter, these cooks would encounter when they were traveling, they'd bring those back into their own homes. Um, so, you know, two kind yeah. of a two-way influence. But I didn't know that at all. I had no idea. That's a really interesting thing to think about in the way that food traveled around the country. <laughs> Literally, on rails. <laughs> yeah. John, I have a question for you. This is going to be a tough question, all right? And I didn't tell you in advance that I was asking you about it. But... This whole month, we've been talking about Black History Month and the way our food's been deeply influenced by African-Americans, African, Africa, African-Americans, and how, um, you know, we have to 
we need to be more at one with 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 each other that we have so much racial division in our society and in our community and my question to you is like i've been cooking in in lexington now for um you know more than 15 years professionally and and before that in new york and then in my entire cooking career i've come across two african-american chefs you're the third why is that most do you have an opinion on it <coughs> most of most men well most african men i guess honestly that is a tough question I know most of them that I've seen is always want to be hardworking. Yeah. Hands on. Yeah. Like, it seems like a good creative expression for people who are interested in that. Yes, but as most people don't know, you have to, as they want to follow economy, if they see price wages differently, they see a whole lot of restaurants. Yeah, maybe. They get scared of. Low wages. So they go to factories. Mm-hmm. Most men want to go to labels, get paid that day. So yeah, like I was even in that category as well before, cause you, I was in that category as well because, you see, uh, the restaurant field thriving so mm-hmm. far, so long, then you just see a deadness in, the, in sales for a while, mm-hmm. and you be like, your family needs this, and they go to factories. Well, you know, the other thing I think, well, I think restaurant wages have been depressed, and so that contributes to it. I also think that um, you have to, some of the restaurant jobs you and I have both had have been bad, right? We yes. both can agree. Um, I mean, I've had the same kind of restaurant jobs in the, in my past that you had talked about earlier, where you're just opening up a bag and you're frying it or you're doing something with it, and you're not really part of a cooking process We've separated the person from the the process. And I think one thing that concerns me, and I don't know how to reach out, but I hope that you can inspire young people to give it a try, is so much of your culture is expressed through cooking. I mean, do you feel like as a father, like with your boys, you're encouraging them to learn more about your mom and your grandmother's cooking and cooking at home, whether or not they go into it professionally? Uh, yes, ma'am. I have my, actually my youngest son, he loves to be in the kitchen with me. I'm trying to teach my oldest, but he's more into the ladies now. (laughs) So it's kind of... Cooking is a great way to get into the ladies. I have to just say that. I'm trying to teach him that, but he's kind of still diverting away from that concept to way to a woman's heart. It's through the belly as well. Yeah. The through the way. care and concern of a, of preparing a good meal. Look at you, everything you've talked about, Vanessa, and how she cares for you with her cooking. You know, he can show that to a young lady. Yeah, I'm trying. But my youngest one, yeah, he's... He's right there. Yes, ma'am. Well, I he, see him a lot, too. He's He loves the kitchen. He loves hanging out with you at work. All right. Well, you are you have been listening to John Granville, and this is Hot Water Corn but Cornbread. I mean, I'm Weeda Michael. I'm here with Rona Roberts and Chris Michael. It's uh, 95.7 WLXL, and take a little break. Listen to a little music for a minute. Some say it's about a nerve, but I say we want to quit moving. 
You're listening to Hot Water Cornbread, Kentucky Food Radio, with uh, your host, Rona Roberts, Chef Weta Michael. We're here talking today with John Granville, a uh, cook, chef, chef, sous chef, with our um, Smithtown seafood, our own Smithtown seafood here in Lexington, and we're just talking about African American cooking traditions and all kind of stuff like that. So I, I would like to talk about John just for a second, although I didn't tell him I was going to do this. But when John is um, behind the counter, so Smithstown Seafood, where people haven't been there, has a sort of, do you call it an open kitchen? I mean, you yeah. can watch the cooking. Kitchen's video. right in the middle of, the, <coughs> of everything. It's, right? it's, there's, a, there's a high counter that you can't really see over, but you can see the work going on. And when John's back there... I always know, okay, this is a really good day to get some good fried food. It's going to be made perfectly. <laughs> and my, my husband has exactly the same reaction. So he'll, he'll have the, the cod, the fried cod dinner, for example, yeah, when he's he John, John back, back there. there. Because it's just done with care um, and yeah. it's done so well. So we, we, we're already fans now, more of a fan now that I've gotten to have some conversation. Um, in our, in our um, backgrounding work, for um, Black History Month and essentially, I guess, trying to start repaying a debt that's not repayable um, that we in North America owe to Africa and African people. Um, One of the things that I thought was interesting, excuse me, was foods that were in Africa before contact before Africa had contact with Europe. Right. And just a few of those include things that we still associate with with African food and with African Americans, including uh, pumpkins, okra, leafy greens, black eyed peas, melons, including watermelons, <clears throat> excuse me, and eggplants, for example. Wow. And then we think of African food now as having tomatoes, peanuts, corn, mm-hmm. um, and chilies and lots those, of chilies. Those things went back to Africa uh, from the New World. They, those are New World foods. Started in Africa, went to the New World, and came back. No, they no. They started in the New World, and, and then as the as as the slave trade and other trade was crossing the ocean, the, oh. the ships went both ways, and so those foods went to Africa, were almost immediately incorporated into African hmm. uh, dishes that we now think of as as timeless, and then. Came back and influenced us here, corn especially, and and preparations of corn. Um, So I was curious how this, how so how the transfers actually came. I've I've written a little book about sorghum, sweet sorghum syrup, which is made from a cane, and the all of the history that I've looked up says the seeds came from Africa, probably with slaves, and. Jessica Harris says, uh, probably not. She says hmm. that, and just think about this. Just think about what we know about the what, what happens when a person is captured, taken away from their home, taken to the coast um, with nothing, no preparation, no time to grab well, seeds. Well, and the way they were shipped. Yes, and they're and held in the in those so-called castles before. Anyway, she says, don't think of. She says, just to make it clear. Um, most likely seeds from African foods came over intentionally with the people who owned the slave ships mm-hmm. because they had they were trying to figure out how to feed slaves in the New World, and they wanted uh, food that was familiar and food that was nurturing and food that people would know how to grow. Right. Um, there's no proof of that that she offered, but that just begins to open a whole new kind of area of inquiry for me about how, how did this happen, um, and how do we not know more 
about how it happens. There's so much we don't know more about. And one of those things that we've learned about this this month, Weta and and Chris and I in looking at our debt to to Africa is about black chefs in the White House. Yeah. Um and some were famous and I just didn't know it. And some I think were fairly obscure but made huge contributions. So we just got some uh, she's got some good stuff. We've got two more. We, we we started with uh, Hercules, who was George Washington's enslaved chef. We had a, a great show on Hercules and James Hennings, who was Thomas Jefferson's enslaved chef, who he took to France for three years, who was a Fr- the, probably America's first um, French-trained American chef. So really fascinating stories they had. And then uh, there are two women that were very influential. One's, one was Vivetta Gar. Um, this was, she worked for President Truman. And she actually worked for President Truman's mother-in-law's family um, starting in 1928. And the interesting story was President Truman's mother-in-law, Bess's mother, refused to come to the White House unless Vivetta came with her. And what that meant was if Vivetta didn't want to come... Truman's mother-in-law wouldn't come, which meant his wife wasn't coming either, right? So <laughs> Bess had to take care of her mother. So Vivetta came to the White House. At first, when the Trumans came to the White House, um, the cooking was all by a French chef, and they it just didn't appeal to them at all, and he couldn't hardly eat any of the food. And uh, Vivetta had cooked almost all of his meals since 1928. So they, she came, she trained all the White House cooks to cook for President Truman, and she brought Mrs. Wallace and cared for her, and then she cared for the the Truman's daughter, um, um, Margaret Truman, when she was, she was a, like a, a singer and into show business, and Vivetta would travel with her. She was the only pres- the person that, that President Truman trusted to travel with his daughter to make sure nothing happened to her. So the thing I loved about her story, she once served watermelon pickles and strawberry short bread at a state dinner for Winston Churchill. And everybody was aghast. I think that sounds delicious. I love watermelon pickles. <coughs> but one of the most influential uh, White House chefs was a woman named Zephyr Wright. Zephyr Wright worked for President and Lady Bird Johnson. And she's, in, uh, she's credited with inspiring LBJ on the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, I wanted to read this quote from her. So Lyndon Johnson was a senator at first, and he wanted her to travel um, with him to Austin and from where they lived in Texas. They lived out on this big ranch. And she finally said, she, she, he asked her, and she, um, she said, no, I'm not going to travel to Austin with you. And this was her quote. She's, and Sammy was her husband. Sammy was his driver. When Sammy and I drive to Texas, I have to go to the bathroom like Ladybird or the other girls. I'm not allowed to go to the bathroom. I have to find a bush and squat. When it comes time to eat, we can't go into restaurants. We have to eat out of a bag. And at night, Sammy sleeps in the front of the car with a steering wheel around his neck while I sleep in the back. We are not going to do it again. This is what she told LBJ. And fast forward to his presidency, she witnessed him sign the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and at the ceremony, he gave her the pen that he used to sign the act, and he said, you deserve this more than anybody else. And so she's really credit. He thought the world of her. Uh, she 